0: You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. With Dan Brown's new book and film being released this late spring and summer, you'll be hearing a great deal more about secret societies, the Founding Fathers, America's symbols, and the District of Columbia or Washington, D.C., and a lot more about it. And the shows we did in 2006 are still running after three years, that's hard to believe, on the History, National Geographic, Discovery, and the German channels, and are going to be revived and updated this spring with shows that we've just completed with the History, Discovery, Canadian television, which has just sold. We heard it's programming to world television. Now, please remember... Dan Brown's writings and films are entertainment; <laughs> they're not necessarily factual. You know, you got to sell a little bit here, and as such, are not documented history, well, not necessarily documented history, and following the success of the Da Vinci Code in 2003, and the intrigue and curiosity now about subjects like Roslyn, the Templars, the Grail, etc., we have with us tonight Dr. Karen Rawls, occasionally been dubbed by the U.S. media as the female Professor Langdon figure in today's world. Dr. Rawls is also seen as knowledgeable about not only the history and heritage about the medieval Templars, but also an expert on their symbolism, seals, and relics. Thank heavens for that. Now, an international lecturer, conference speaker, History Channel resource, and former deputy curator of a key Roslyn Chapel exhibition, she is currently working on compiling a huge encyclopedia of medieval wisdom to delve deeper into the world of the High Middle Ages and these fascinating medieval topics that still intrigue us today, especially for myself. Go to her website, ancientquest.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Dr. Karen Rawls.
1: Well, hello, Dr. Bob. It's, It's very much a privilege to be back. And I'm certainly, like many of us, I have also very much enjoyed your work. And I thank you for the efforts you've put in. And I think, as you say, we are now on another wave of interest in many of these topics and, of course, a deepening of our knowledge has come forth in the last few
0: years. The Knights Templar has gotten become more popular than than uh, than cheeseburgers here in, <laughs> in the United States. It's true. Well,
1: they're popular here, too, actually,
0: <laughs> over here in, in England, yep. Yeah, but what motivated the beginning of the Knights Templars in 1119?
1: Well, the Knights Templar, today we hear that and we think the famed white knights of the Crusades, you know, the white mantle and the big red cross. And and we often forget about their beginnings. And I know there's a lot of questions and fascinating um, research being done about their ending, but their beginning is very intriguing also. And the main issue is when they began, of course, and why they began and who started them. The main reason was they had a terrible issue going on in the late you know, Middle Ages. This is about the 12th century, around when the Templars officially emerged in 1119. We know that there were originally nine men from various um, elite families in the area of Burgundy, which is now the Champagne area of France, and also Flanders. So they were from Flemish and Burgundian elite stock, a lot of them. And they were summoned to help solve a major problem, ostensibly was to defend the major highways and byways going to Jerusalem. To protect the pilgrims. I mean, there was an issue of a lot of um, dangerous travel and bandits practically around every corner (laughs) Um, at that time. Of course, the Saracens versus the Crusaders and everything. So the Templars began in, in the backdrop of a very difficult time. And the church at first heard lots of increasing stories about pilgrims getting attacked or robbed on their way to Rome and even, you know, especially on the way to Jerusalem. So finally, You might say the straw that broke the camel's back was actually Easter of 1119. What happened then was 300 pilgrims were attacked and taken prisoner, and many were killed, etc., etc., and that was last cry, (laughs) and uh, the Pope decided something should be done, and ostensibly we have rather suddenly these nine men appearing um, before King Baldwin II on the Temple Mount area to offer themselves as a fledgling new order of knights who would help protect the Pilgrim Roots. So that is, you might say, the orthodox official account. And in a very real sense, they were needed for that purpose. But as we know, it's hard to imagine that only nine men could police all of the highways and byways in the area. And, um, of course, the question remains, what were they doing for what we know to be at least a nine-year period before the Templars became official? And that happened at a big event, like a big conference, called the Council of Troy, where all the churchmen and the pope, everyone met, especially under the direction of one of the key founders and lobbyists of the Templars, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And he really lobbied to help the church these nine men to make them an official order, the order of the temple. So we know it's just about nine, nine and a half years. So we know that there wasn't much growth in the order during that time, but we have very few records that have actually survived about these first nine years. And what has survived is contradictory. (laughs) So that's partly why there's all the the speculation. Um, In a sense, speculation can be a very good thing. Um, you know, nothing is ingrained in stone until proven otherwise, as we say in history. So, again, it's okay to speculate. However, we have to be careful, especially with topics like the Knights Temple, not to go inadvertently too far the other way.
0: Well, but, I'm, I'm certain yeah. that that's one of the big problems in all yeah. areas uh, well, of research now.
1: <laughs> but I think behind that is a, is a very healthy interest in history, and heritage and as you mentioned in the intro especially as americans what are our symbols what do they mean like the statue of liberty and the these very powerful ancient symbols the templars of course were bloodthirsty crusaders and the pope's militia on one level (laughs) no question about it and on the other many believe maybe they were digging for treasure or they found something and underneath the temple mount which of course again no records have survived we don't know for sure Archaeologists today do know that there is an extensive water works and tunnels under there, but there's no proof that the Knights Templar found anything per se partly because the records are so scarce. No one can say for sure one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But we cannot automatically make big assumptions. But there are very interesting conglomeration of events and people around this whole movement, which ended up being what you could possibly call, you know, the largest first Western multinational organization from these original nine men ended up having well over 2,000 commanderies, which is like a local, perhaps a state office. (laughs) The national headquarters would be in Jerusalem, and many, many countries in Europe had Templar receptories, and commanderies. So it grew and grew and grew. They did carefully protect pilgrims. They did do that. That's not just a myth. They actually did. And they had an extensive shipping network. They shipped wine, produce, and pilgrims. (laughs) Uh, Quite (laughs) an amazing combo. Um, They also we know, had extensive diplomatic dealings with the Saracens, the purported enemy, and that is part of the rub of the accusation much later for supposedly cavorting with the enemy. But we have to remember, in those days, you know, technically there was no State Department. There was only the church. So the Templars, when they won many battles, which, of course, they're very famed for, we know, they would send diplomats to Saladin and his forces, and they would also send one back to the Christian side. And there was all kinds of um, negotiations going on. Towards that end, we know that there were some Saracen translators and interpreters within the Templar contingent, and that is mentioned in parts of their rule. So we know that they were very very high up and important in what we might today think of as quite a secular capacity, you know. Mm-hmm. They were extremely dedicated. We know that the sort of men the Templars were today is really hard for us, you know, with our many freedoms and to come and go as we please and everything. But back then, you know, it wasn't just merely a praying monk in a monastery. Oh. It was the concept that made the Templars different from, say, the Benedictines, Cistercians, the the usual monastic orders that were very noble and around at the time. The Templars went one step further. The thing that that they did was, at the instigation of Bernard of Clairvaux, the idea of a fighting militia that would not only pray, but also fight, and the concept of martyrdom and the the color red, which, of course, the Red Cross, <laughs> the concept of martyrdom was one of their major underlying beliefs and philosophy and protection of certain family bloodlines and also winning, of course, the Holy Land for the Christians as much as they could possibly do. They were never, ever allowed to stop fighting as long as the official flag was up on the battlefield. They could not leave the battlefield. If they did, they would be instantly defrocked, as we would say today for a priest. You could not continue. They would be Their mantle would be taken from them, which was a great shame. So the point being, they really were, perhaps today we might think of a very austere, dedicated, totally focused force. Perhaps like the Delta Forces, the Marines, SAS, that kind of very difficult training and awareness and focus. So I'm just trying to give it just a general background of the kind of absolute dedication and total focus that they that they had on many levels.
0: Well so, certainly it certainly is important to realize that the depth of, of their belief and the yes because uh, many individuals who've written some really fascinating books on this particular topic really overdo that. What I mean by overdoing it, they have speculated beyond belief in regards to what they have found the hidden knowledge that the Templars possessed or allegedly possessed. And I think that's what I'd like to focus on now. What did they allegedly find in the Holy Land? You you, you related uh, a little earlier that it was possibly artifacts and or perhaps even uh, well gold or whatever. But what kind of knowledge did they really gain in doing this? Because I, had a, I have a deep feeling that they were more about the inner man rather than the external man.
1: Mm, Yes, very well put, very well put. I think um, basically... Just to slightly backtrack to what hidden knowledge were they alleged to possess? I think the first thing, of course, I know historians can be a bit of a stickler for detail, (laughs) but you know there are things called archives, okay? We have libraries today, and I know a lot of students hate to do exams and tests, especially in history, but we do have quite a few remains, ironically, from certain of the individualized countries regarding the Knights Templar from 12th, 13th century in particular, Like from Spain, we have some examples in France that have survived fragments here and there. That's my point. Because of that, we have a situation where we have piecemeal evidence that we have to put together. The problem, and again, partly why there has been so much speculation, is that this central archive was
0: lost. We'll find out more about what happened to the central archive of actual Templar records after this break. This is 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and we're listening to an interview with Oxford scholar Dr. Karen Rawls, author of The Knight's Templar Encyclopedia, The Essential Guide to the People, Places, Events, and Symbols of the Order of the Temple, published by New Page Books. Find out more from Karen Rawls' website, www ancientquest.com. This is Dr. Richard Bartlett, founder of Matrix Energetics, and you're listening to
1: 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus.
0: We left Karen Rawls, who was about to tell us what happened to the official historical archive of the Templar Records that vanished from history several hundred years ago. Let's find out what she says probably happened to this archive.
1: There's quite a history... As to what happened to it, we know that this would have been today, for example, a huge company like IBM or something, the headquarters office would have, you know, the national headquarters would have all the major important records, minutes of meetings. In this case, the Templars had very, very expensive mortgages for land, you might say, the deeds of the land, who owned what and where. Now, that's, the, that's been very frustrating for historians. A lot of that is, has been lost. It started out in Jerusalem, obviously, the headquarters. And then after the fall of the Holy Land in 1191, it moved to Acre, on the coast, and then after 1291, very devastating loss for Christianity. Then um, in that area to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. So the records were transferred, and that would have included any relics as well to that area. But then after. The official suppression of the order. The arrests we know were of course in the famed Friday the 13th of 1307 and then after a series of trials the order was officially suppressed by order of the Vatican but that was in 1312. Now after that the official records eventually were given over to the rivals of the Templars, the Knights Hospitaller. Today their modern-day branch is the Order of St. John so those records that would have been medieval Templar were then transferred to their rivals after 1312. But then the battles of history went on, <laughs> and Cyprus in particular became a focus, and the Turks captured Cyprus, the Ottoman Turks, and one of the most devastating attacks was in about 1571. And it is believed by many historians today that presumably at that point we lose track of many of the medieval Templar and medieval Hospitaller records. A few have survived, but not very many. That was the loss of the Central Archive, a big chunk of it, shall we say. And that was a major tragic loss. So that we don't have, okay? What we do have, some people like to say, oh, there's no records left at all, therefore we can speculate and go on and, you know. Um, actually, we do have records, we do, and we are still translating some of them, and there are more and more that are showing up in various local libraries and regional areas. So, mm-hmm. again, that information, as it's further translated,
0: my point being, the jury is still out. When they're translated, what languages are they being translated from? Well, it depends
1: from? on where they were found. Whether so. it's Portugal, Spain, Italy, Germany—I mean, the Templars, in a sense, um, everyone in the modern-day EU is like, "Well, we, we have it's multilingual." Well, actually, the Knights Templar were, were had to be multilingual. Um, they often knew quite a few languages. They had a huge empire. Imagine a huge international corporation. The national headquarters was raised to the ground. The records are gone. But there's various branch offices okay mm-hmm. and and there are various areas various regions various languages so those throughout history because of each nation had its own history and its own difficulties with storage and some things sometimes there was fire sometimes things were lost whatever so we're we're still finding things there are fragments and there are also some objects but i'll get to that later <laughs> but right now there are questions about archives We know the official archives because they have a certain seal of the Knights Templar on them, so we know they're genuine. And many have speculated that maybe the Templars found gold, as you mentioned, or treasures or Scrolls, perhaps some believe it was documents although my counter argument to that would be it's awful moist under there with mm-hmm. the water cistern tunnels under this <laughs> i don't know if scrolls would have survived too well because you know if you know anything about scroll preservation in museums it can be you know the humidity factor is i mean it's just there's just all these practical issues you have to think about but again um, until we actually find something that is provable that it was Templar, then we we cannot speculate any further on that for sure. but many have now believed that there could have been genealogical documents, possibly. Again, the problem there is there are various viewpoints, and some arguments can be quite fierce actually among certain families about their medieval history. So it, you know again, even if there were documents found, then there's the question of are they accurate? And so far, we have not actually been able to in the public domain anyway. We have not found anything provable that we can say the Templars found under the Templar
0: Mount. And that one of the reasons why I asked the, about the language was that my dear friend David Overson, he is a master of about six or seven language mm-hmm. languages, and, and especially in regards to Nostradamus being uh, written in an archaic French, mm-hmm. uh, my uh-huh. concerns were this. Ancient French is not the same as French today.
1: No, it's not. In fact there's a couple of different
0: branches.
1: I mean there's provincial I mean that you know, I mean, yes, that's right. There are various areas. It's not the same as French today. That's right. Modern-day French is, is a different language. I mean, it, medieval French isn't really in, it's very, quite different. You have to really delve into it and study it for a long time to, to master it. But that would have been a lot of, some of their material would have been in that. But a fair amount was also in Latin because they were connected with the church. There's those issues. And then there's the other issue about did they perhaps find a foundation stone, of what they believed to be the original stone of the temple under there. And did they, in fact, bring that back to the West? That's been spantied around. (laughs) And again, we can't prove that in black and white. It's very interesting because I know some Masonic historians have posited that idea that maybe they were not actually looking for gold at all that they were actually searching for what in their mind would have been the original roots of the temple. But again, uh, we don't have a diary the Templars left us. We don't have the, head, the records of the headquarters. We only have bits and pieces. So it, it's a piecemeal research dilemma.
0: But there have been some popular historical claims, especially in regards to the severed head of St. John the Baptist being in the hands of the Templars. Could you tell us about that possibility? Because I, that'd be a very difficult thing to prove.
1: Well, the interesting issue about the severed head, of course, I think there's been a lot of mystique about that since very early ancient Celtic times. Um, The Arthurian legends talk about, you know, a head on a platter and all of that. And then, of course, the martyrdom idea of certain saints. And again, the Templars, in their own rule, very, very much emphasized and respected greatly any saint who was also a martyr in some way, male and female, I mean, to them, if someone was willing to die for their beliefs, they were worthy of a special feast day, so to speak. The idea of the severed head of John the Baptist has always been a hot potato, you might say, in the in the religious history. But ironically, it was actually the Hospitallers of St. John who did venerate the bearded head of St. John the Baptist, not the Knights Templar. Especially after the suppression, when documents and any relics or objects were sent to their rivals, the Hospitallers. So we know from they have a seal one of their official seals of the order in France has an image of a severed head for the hospitalers. So mm-hmm. it's actually really more properly something to do with the Knights' Hospitallers. There is a lot of speculation about the um, the Joannine side of Christianity, which again is believed to come from St. John. The evangelist and the Baptist is having a, a hand in that, and some Masonic scholars do maintain of course there's much debate in their camp as well, that the Joannine tradition of Christianity, a more esoteric extreme perhaps might have been closer what the Knights Templar were actually about. The only thing with that, though, if you actually look at the rule they live by every day, it certainly is quite mainstream in a way, mm-hmm. because it doesn't actually spell out any specific deviations from what we would today think of as quite mainstream Catholicism. <laughs> so again, they were the Pope's militia. And um, if there were heretics, it probably would have been a, you know, a minority group, an offshoot somewhere, but it certainly could not be said of the order as a whole. And ironically they were never directly accused of heresy not until near near the time of the arrests and the suppression early on the various rulers of europe looked to them as opposed to some of the other crusading orders as being the most pure example of of a good christian fighting knight in a way their conduct Was they didn't have, like, for example, you know, tabloid type sex scandals, none of that, not hardly any of it in the Knights Templar. So they weren't suspect in that manner.
0: But that's what's so fascinating about this that that some of the claims that have been made about the Templars were actually about the Knights Hospitallers.
1: We have to remember that after 1312, there was a transfer over to the Hospitallers of the Templar material, but we don't have Templar records that say for sure what they believed or Mm -hmm. what they had. What we do have is their rule, and it does reveal quite a bit about what relics and symbols and seals that they have.
0: Well, let's go through that first, uh, and and then uh, what destroyed them? Because uh, obviously they were doing the work that they were supposed to do, and some for some reason they were uh, a target of the church, and they had served the church so well, so why in the world would the church turn on? Well, I think we all know the answer, but...
1: As a historian, no one can deny this on either side of the camp, so to speak. After the Templars returned from their initial nine years or whatever, there is absolutely no question that following the Council of Troy, which again, remember, that's when they were made, quote, official official order by the church, which is a very big movement because it often took a lot longer, and you had to have a lot more men than nine to get that status. I mean, that was a really big point for Mm -hmm. this fledgling order of the temple. So from that point on, after 1128 onwards... It's really fascinating to note the meteoric rise of this fledgling order. They suddenly got all kinds of land and funding and money and interest, and that's undeniable. It is interesting to note, and, um, and many ask, well, there must they must have had something, and of course, perhaps you know, maybe they did, but we just don't know for sure. We can't prove if they did have it. What was it? Again, the speculation mounts, but that was one issue. But as, to, as far as, like, what was the plot against them or the question about why would such an illustrious order of, if anything, pristine pope's militia who won all the battles, you know, ostensibly mainstream, why would they be attacked? You know, it just seems very odd. Well, of course, the extent of this organization today is hard for us to fathom how huge it was. Today, we would say it would be global, you know. Um, in that time, it was this huge machinery, you might say, of power and incredible the wealth and, after time, of course, the land and the issue of how they got their money was from very, very many sources. It wasn't just land and treasure goods, but they were actually officially not just knights, but the Templars had other functions. And it's, it's here that it gets quite fascinating to research because, again, the records we have are often very practical perhaps even boring to imagine going through medieval accounting records of sheep farming. (laughs) Um, Well, in certain areas, sheep were very valuable because wool was selling for a good price. The Champagne Fairs, if you could come in with wool, certain quality, you could sell it and create high-level cloth, which was an incredibly luxurious commodity. They also had come from the, the East. They had exotic spices and special wines, and and some believe they brought back certain statues, like the Black Madonna, things like that. So the Templars were very well-traveled, very well-versed. They weren't just knights, but they also had an extensive trading and landowning and agricultural function. They also had a naval branch, and this is something we don't often hear too much about, the idea of having an admiral. (laughs) The first admiral was actually official in 1301, so they they actually were not only by land, but by sea. The Templars were really moving a lot of goods around, so naturally we might think, oh, they must have made a lot of interest. No, they couldn't do that because the church forbade the use of usury, which is charging interest, so they would get some admin fee, not interest.
0: That's right, the Knights Templar ruled the seas, as well as patrolling the pilgrimage routes between Europe and Jerusalem. Some researchers have even linked the symbolism of the Templars to the use of the skull and crossbones and Jolly Roger used on pirate flags. Were some famous pirates actually ex-Knights Templars who had escaped after their downfall? This is 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and our guest is Dr. Karen Rawls, author of the Knights Templar Encyclopedia. Check out Karen Rawls' website, www.ancientquest.com. That's ancientquest.com. When we come back, Dr. Rawls is going to make you wonder why so many soaring Gothic cathedrals sprang up all over Europe immediately upon the return of the original nine Knights Templars. So don't go away.
1: This is Rian Eisler. I'm the author of The Chalice and the Blade, The Real Wealth of Nations, and other books, and president of the Center for Partnership Studies. And I've just done an interview with Dr. Bob Hieranimous for 21st Century Radio, and I've really enjoyed it. So I encourage
0: you to listen. And I also encourage you to go to our website, partnershipway.org. Our subject tonight is the truth about the mysterious Knights Templar from a leading scholar in the field, sometimes called the female Professor Langdon, after the Da Vinci Code's main character and historic sleuth. You can order her book from New Page. Visit her website at ancientquest.com. Karen was just telling us about the multitudes of income streams the Knights Templar had organized at the peak of their immensely wealthy and powerful reign.
1: It's very fascinating how diverse their whole empire was. Um, They would have certain feast days, they would sell, in fact, not even unlike certain um, village church fairs today. On a saint's day, they'll have a, a festival or something, they'll sell cakes or goods. Well, the Templars were often in charge of charging, they collected taxes, they also charged road tolls, like the toll fee going into a city. They had such a broad way of cleverly keeping their empire alive and thriving. One of those other ways was the agricultural side, which we often don't think about because we focus on the battlefield a lot with the Templar image. But the truth is, a lot of the wealth was actually generated back in Western Europe. The lucrative farming estates and the animals, produce, that type of thing, was there to raise money for their brothers in the East. So it was quite an, an interlocking network. And two of our practices today in Western banking, the safety deposit box, and also the idea of letters of credit, which sort of like you're you're traveling, you know, you want to get some traveler's checks. You know, it was, that idea was really brought home in a big, big way in the West by the Knights Templar. And they were following, there's a few others, the Rothschilds had started in the Medici, but the Templars really got it into a much broader way in some areas. So they had quite an extensive network and sophistication about that. Of course, it was a very feudal time as well. So the church really had much more power then over many affairs than it does today. It's more distant. So again, we have to keep the backdrop of what the High Middle Ages period was like to really understand this whole thing. But no matter how you look at it, there is no doubt that after the Templars, the original nine knights returned to Western Europe to do some major fundraising, they were incredibly successful. And it was quite sudden And some historians have pointed out, and again, this is hard to deny as well, (laughs) shortly following this period, after the Council of Troy, and Bernard of Clairvaux was from Troy in Champagne again, which is, you know, all roads seem to lead to Troy with the history of the Templars. That area of Champagne and Burgundy is real, real important. And that whole point is that there was an extensive network that grew from there. And after they returned, they got more land and backing, and then suddenly we see another thing happening all over Europe, especially in France, again, home of the Templars. We see a mushrooming of something called a new style high Gothic, and all these Gothic cathedrals started coming up. But... And I want to say this again, and I'll say it twice. (laughs) We don't have any direct proof that the Knights Templars built the cathedrals. They did not build the cathedrals. They may have helped finance them in certain areas, but the guilds built the cathedrals. But we do see a new awareness of sacred geometry. And in the writings of Bernard de Clairvaux, he did make various comments about admiring the cube as the New Jerusalem, and of course he looked to the Hagia Sophia, special building in Istanbul, you know, Constantinople, then, as a building that was interesting to admire, and they wanted to supersede that. And Abbey Sugar who started officially started Gothic in Saint Denis outside of Paris, that was one of their inspirations. So again, you know the the connection of High Gothic. Today, as you were saying, a lot of people have speculated and they said that there does seem to be what I would call a vicarious connection in many places with the order of the temple and the local Cistercians who were behind high, a lot of high gothics. But that doesn't mean automatically that the Templars built the cathedrals. You see what I'm saying?
0: Oh, certainly, because we have the same kind of problem when we take a look at the Founding Fathers and their creations, so to speak, and, and the Dan Browns of the world basically pointing uh, to shortcut ways of history that are oversimplification and very exciting, You know, and they, and they take over on a life of their own. But after all of the success, a plot against the medieval Templars occurred, and that's what I'd like to focus on now, and then some, of course what happened on Friday the 13th and what they were accused of. Can we go into that?
1: Um, I guess in a, in a real quick nutshell, the way to think about this with our modern day awareness of trials and justice, <laughs> I just want to mention one quick thing. The Inquisition in the Middle Ages, the purpose of a trial was not to prove or find the truth because it was a, it was not a secular state matter. It was a church matter. So once One was charged, even like with Joan of Arc, too, this this type of thing, heresy or whatever. The idea was the cardinals had to question them and try to prove that the charges were true. You see what I'm saying? It was a different focus from Mm -hmm. the very beginning. So what we have with the the issue of the Knights Templar, especially after the final card and the deck fell for the Holy Land for Christendom, which it's hard for us again to imagine the blow this was after years and years of all these wonderful victories and various issues. By 1291, the fall of Acre and everything, it was really serious. And, you know, a year or two on from that, you know, and somebody had to gradually be the scapegoat and be blamed for the lack of success. You know, after time went on, the order of the temple kind of lost their reason, major reason for existence in many ways. And the church was starting to wonder whether some of the orders should be combined. And, you know, it was kind of a, a time of lots of questioning anyway. But we have two characters in this drama that are very central to the arrest and especially trials which, by the way, there was not one trial. There were at least five or six or seven of them over a period of seven years. The main character, of course, is the Pope Clement V, which now we know from further study, he was rather clever politically in some ways, but he's rather weak weak-willed politically, and he was frankly, it's become quite clear, he was very much dominated by the very powerful and ambitious, and many would say greedy, King Philippe IV of France. And he was the French king that was really the instigator of the setting up the charges, you might say. After the fall of the Holy Land, everyone was getting very demoralized, and it was it was not a good time for anyone to really openly tout the Templars in the same manner as they had before. So King Philippe thought, here's my chance. (laughs) You know, everyone's demoralized. He um, also owed them a lot of money. And we have to remember again, the great wealth of the order of the temple was really extraordinary. By today's standards, they would have the major bank vaults of all the banks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, they were it, you know. And they were literally the treasurers to many kings and popes throughout their history. So they had extensive wealth. So he wanted his hands on that because he was running out of funds from the crusades also. He wanted money and power, and he also wanted to be seen throughout all of Europe as the most Christian king. He really had lots of different motives. So he arranged, in a sense, for what might term a collusion effort with Clement V, the pope, the weaker pope. He used all kinds of bully tactics on the pope, and, you know, we now come to more fully understand that aspect. But between the two of them, the Templars were still at that point a large organization based not just in France, but in England, Germany, Italy, everywhere. But the arrests were very sudden. It was still a pretty illustrious order. Everyone really respected the Templars, even though they knew they lost the Holy Land, but they still had incredible respect. Everyone was absolutely astounded. I mean, today it's like you get up, have your coffee, 7 o'clock, read the newspaper, and, and the screaming headline of the most famous respected people have been suddenly arrested in every single province of your country.
0: Sounds a little bit like today sometimes.
1: In a way, it's, yeah. it's like this tabloid effect. Yeah, it, it was It was really that kind of a shock. And people were like, oh, this can't be right. Sure, the Templars weren't guilty. This is ridiculous, you know. And um, the king was, of course, gloating, no doubt. But um, from the steps of Notre Dame Cathedral, the charges were read out. And they were ghastly by medieval standards. They were accused of blasphemy and all kinds of, you know, denying Christ, you know, which was at that point just unthinkable crime for anyone, spitting on the cross, which most people thought there's no way a Templar would do that, you know. So there was there was all of this public shock and debate, and a lot of people just couldn't believe this. They were wondering, well, what dirt did they have on them? Is there some secret going on? So then, of course, the rumor mill began. <laughs> I guess that would probably happen today as well. But the long story short, basically, that was sudden roundup. And there have been questions about were they tipped off? I mean, if the Templars were that powerful, surely they would have, you know, had Mormons or something. Well, for the most part, it appears they were taken by surprise. And one or two areas in the Languedoc, we, we think they may have gotten a bit of word from their friends in Aragon, but for the most part, it was a sudden roundup. So they were put in prison, and this included the Grand Master Jacques de Molay, who was tricked at a funeral to be a pallbearer, and then he suddenly was in prison that evening. (laughs) I mean, it was really incredible how the, the king was very clever, how he set all this up. So there were the Templars rounded up. Now, eventually, because of the church administration procedures for an Inquisition, they were asked many questions, and um, as we know from medieval history, of course, there were horrible tortures that if they didn't feel they were getting the answers they wanted or needed. Remember, the purpose was not to find the truth, but it was to prove the charges. So if, if someone didn't answer what they needed, they would apply the rack and all of these terrible, you know, burning your soles of your feet and all these unbelievable tortures over a period of time, but there were many various trials in France um, held, but we might ask, well, what about the Templars in England or Italy or Germany? Well, that's where it gets very interesting, because even the Pope had some questions at this point for the French kings. How can you just round these, you know, I, I'm the Pope. They are my, my militia, my warriors. I should have some right as to the, how the trial proceeds. Well, what seems to have happened is the Pope was not included on all of the debates and arguments. So the, the king of France and the Pope started to argue. And then the king of England, Edward, said, I don't believe you. I don't believe the Templars are guilty. Because the, at that point, the French king had gotten the Pope to write to all the other kings of, of Europe and said, round up all the Templars. You know, they're guilty, they've done all these horrible things, and if you don't, you will lose your soul in hell, you know. So that was the ultimate threat. So the problem they had then was the other monarchs did not believe these charges because the Templars had brought them a lot of um, success in the Crusades. They brought them, obviously, wealth to the community. They brought them wool. They brought them sheep. They were protecting pilgrims. They were... They were collecting taxes. <laughs> I mean, these, these knights were real handy and, and good to them in many ways. Yeah, so they couldn't believe it. Edward did not arrest the Templars right away. He refused. And, you know, it took a long time to get some of the countries. Um, in Germany, many of the Templars ended up escaping um, parts of Italy. They were tortured very badly. Other parts, they, we don't know what happened to them. The arrest was initially a French issue. And only later, sometimes it took a year or two before all the other countries complied, but they finally did because the the Pope really put pressure on them. He was you know had his own concerns politically about his own position, his own power, and you know his own regime, so they all capitulated eventually however it 's very uneven as to which nation used torture, and it took a long time if at all, for some countries to apply torture to Templar Knights. In France, it was by far the worst. And surprise, that's where they got the most confessions. <laughs> the Templars were a complex organization of many nations, not just, you know, quote, the Templars, meaning one mm-hmm. thing, because it was actually quite diverse and quite different in, in many different areas. And
0: um, Well, that's what's so important about your research. Karen of working in a- these particular areas that many have already assumed a number of things a lot of there are a lot of books out as you well know oh, that yeah. assume all kinds of things in regards to the Templars and you know as you noted uh, that they they didn't build the the Gothic cathedrals but my heavens there are whole books on that that say that they did and and the documentation is pretty sparse as And and, uh, there's been an oversimplification as to who they are and what they were doing. And the deeper you get into any of these areas, and the finer the details, you begin to lose the the popular (laughs) the popular view of things, um, which like to see you know these these individuals sometimes like Robin Hoods. That's
1: that's a very similar topic, really. That there's yes, it is.
0: When you touch on a little later on, we hopefully we'll get to the Grail. And the romances and how were they linked to the Templars, etc.? But would you like to finish up where you were, what you were discussing? About the trials, I was just saying, you know, we often think the trials
1: only happened in France, but Mm -hmm. that's not true. In fact, there's there's some, in my Knights Templar Encyclopedia, I have real extensive information about each country and what exactly happened. But in Germany was one of the most funny situations. Um, The Templars actually were accused, you know, of course, in some hearing. And then some of their fellow knights actually burst into the room and took on the Inquisitor. I mean, it's... it's Whoa! And this is... (laughs) <laughs> I know. It's amazing. It's just like you can't. And I thought, well, there, there's real Templars for you. Uh, you know, there's <laughs> a real movie the door, there. Just too. break the door down and take, down, take on the prosecutor. But that is actually documented history. And my point being, you hear about a lot of speculation, but we often don't hear about some of the, the truly documented things that are very fascinating. Yes, yes.
0: We have to break here for the news, but when we return, you are in for a treat. After the arrest and suppression of the Knights Templar, the question of what happened next is the stuff of Hollywood legends. Did they go underground? Did they sneak off to Scotland and bury the Holy Grail at Roslyn Chapel, leaving clues all over the chapel's carvings? Did they sail for the new world and infiltrate the Freemasons in order to found the new United States of America? Who knows? Dr. Karen Rawls will tell us what is known as historically accurate by her book the knight's templar encyclopedia the essential guide to the people places events and symbols from new page books karen rawls website is ancientquest.com that's ancientquest.com our guest is dr karen rawls an oxford scholar and author of the knight's templar encyclopedia the essential guide to the people places, events, and symbols of the Order of the Temple, which you can order from new page books. Karen Rawls' website is www.ancientquest.com. When we left off last hour, Karen was telling us about some of the historically accurate and still thrilling tales of the Templar knights breaking down courtroom doors to rescue their fellows on trial. Sometimes the truth is as dramatic as the speculative fictions that are so popular today. In this segment, we are going to find out what happened after the trials. Did the Pope condemn them all as heretics? And where did the escaped Templars go? the trials were done nation by nation it was not just
1: one uniform policy it was very very diverse and even after the pope finally decided and perhaps rightly we can understand today he was you know he issued um a proclamation of, called a papal bull stating with with the rationale that well, you know, we've, we've had all these tabloid rumors for seven years, all these trials and hearings. And, and at that point, privately, he was really angry at the French King anyway, because he felt outmaneuvered. So he did not ever say that the order itself was guilty. And I want to make that very clear, because some there are people out there that think the whole Templar order was heretic or guilty. That's not mm-hmm. true. It is not documentable. The Pope said that the order was not guilty. And um, individuals, that's another matter. But, you know, the order itself was not thought by the Vatican to be guilty per se. But the rationale for suppressing it was the tabloids, the rumor mill, had so destroyed the respectability and credibility of it that he actually thought, okay, it's more sensible to dissolve this particular religious order, the order of the temple, and have those knights join other orders. And this is where it gets interesting on what happened after the suppression. (laughs) Again, it's nation by nation. There was a different story, different scenario, and even in some countries, like in France, for example, two or three different areas where it was different. So there's not a uniform blanket way of viewing this subject, even after the suppression. It's very, very complex, but... um, Following the suppression order, everyone's like, well, what happened? Where did they go? You know, Some people think they all went to Scotland. No, they didn't. They went a lot of different places. In fact, the question is, where were all the Templars? We don't even know what happened to a fair amount of them. But legally, according to the, the, concern, the concerns of the Vatican at the time, understandably, they wanted the religious order knights to remain in a religious order. They had to join another order. Some went to the Benedictines. Some went into um, various orders, especially in Aragon. The Templars had a lot of power in that area, Spain and Portugal area today. And um, one of those, you know, we, we think, you know, the order of, we hear things like Order of Calatrava and Order of Montesa. Those, those were branches of, you know, the Order of Christ was the big one that a lot of the refugee Templars went to. But those weren't the only places um, the truth is, for a fair amount of knights in places like Italy and Germany, we just don't know. <laughs> um, they they were theoretically pensioned out to monasteries. But um, the point being, again, the records are piecemeal by nation also. And some of, the, some of the areas, we know pretty much what happened to every one of them. Others, we really, we, it's just a gap, you know. So again, leading back to what you were saying about all these theories and books and I'm actually glad there's a lot of interest. You know, I'm I'm glad to see the interest, but it it does concern me that, you know, sometimes there's too many leaps, and some of the actual history is very interesting. Yeah. Like to look at their own rule about their relics. Um, they actually listed that, um, you know, they did have what they said was the true cross. There was one, I think it's Section 122 <laughs> of their order. It says that they had to have... Uh, this was that this was their most precious relic, and that when that relic was taken around to all their, the front of the battlefield before a battle, um, it had to be guarded by ten knights who had no purpose other than to be like a shrine guardian and guard it. That's actually in the order, in the rule for itself. They also said they had the crown of thorns, which is no surprise for us really today, and then things like um, they had. Heads of, we know of two female saints. Now again, this is where it gets interesting. Like which saints were they? Well, there's some debate about them. But in my encyclopedia, I get into all the you know mm-hmm. details about these things, and we're still learning more about them. But there are you know some places they had what they called the cross of Caravaca, and, and they still have that in parts of in Spain. And these relics were are have ended up in various museums. Again. Sometimes it's a small museum, small chapel in Italy, or I found something that was mislabeled. I said, this is a an night Templar. And the curator didn't have any idea. He was like, oh, God, you know. <laughs> so they've now relabeled the whole thing. <laughs> so, I mean, again, history is a living thing. It's a living thing. And the Templar subject is really fascinating. And um, it's not the only subject that was going on at the time. It's not in a vacuum the Templars and the Hospitallers, the Knights of Lazarus, all of these orders were interspersed and permeated in and through each other. And that's my point, like, about the Gothic cathedrals. There's a lot of different orders and guilds that would have been, for example, to build Chartres. It's so phenomenal. But it would not have been just one guild, or certainly the Templars only. It would have been a mutual effort on the part of many. And so when the Templars were finally suppressed there were some of the a few of the officers remained and unfortunately this is this is one of the biggest travesties in medieval history is the burning of jacques de malay and um, the whole story is and obviously it's in my book <laughs> but um it's very sad to read he was very elderly at that point and the french king went ahead and just said burn him you know and this it was in 1314 now, and that's two years after the official suppression. The treasurer and the grandmaster were burned at the stake. Very suddenly, so again, it was an unjust thing um, in the long run. But so after that, the Templars dispersed. Whoever was left dispersed. Most of them were either, were quite elderly at that point. Some of them um, who had been in the Western Europe managing the local preceptory, for example, so they were were pensioned out in various monastic orders and everything, and others disappeared. And again, there's questions about um, certain ships leaving, and you know, where did they go, and what did they leave, and and um, that is an area that is growing in concern. And and many people think, oh, maybe they went west to America. But again, where's the where's the concrete evidence? We just we don't have it. <laughs> um, in fact, I wish we did. I wish we had evidence of a lot of this, but we yeah. just don't. Yeah, you know? sure. And so, um, but
0: you mentioned you mentioned the relics of the True Cross or the Crown of Thorns, the heads of two female saints, etc. But but also, you know, my fascination always is with symbols and and seals and that type of thing. Yes. Uh, could you review briefly, uh, because of our limited time, uh, some of their often highly mysterious symbols or, or seals of the order?
1: I think one of the most intriguing, I mean, I'll just mention real quickly just the, the, how broad their symbolism was. But one of the main things, of course, um, we think of today is the, the Grand Master's seal, which was two knights on one horse. And that that is a very ancient symbol, actually. It goes clear back to Samaria initially. But um, it is very interesting. Many people think, what is you know, what does that domed building on the reverse side mean? Um, it's kind of like the reverse side of the great seal. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a Templar one, Bob. It's, uh, it's um, the official seal of the Grand Master on one side had a, what we know or call now the circular dome of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. And on the other side is the symbol of the two knights on the one horse. Now, today, outside of the Temple Church in London, there is a sculpture of this two knights on one horse. You can actually see that. So that was the official seal, but the issue again, it was very regional, and the provinces' grandmasters had their own symbols. And this is where it gets really fascinating and often kind of unusual, because we'll see other symbols um, in, depending on the area. Now. Another classic symbol of the Templars is the Lamb of God, which, of course, is found in many cathedrals and chapels, too. So it wasn't just a Templar thing. But we also see a fair amount of eagles and um, castle tower. We don't quite know in all cases what that means. I I think it's very fascinating, the tower image on various crosses. Um, the cross of Lorraine with the double bar, as well as the classic Templar cross, which is red with four equidistant sides. We see that in a lot of their seals and symbols. Doves, stars, five points, certain areas, six points, Um, a crescent moon, and then there's a tower with a pointed roof and a cross on it. And one of the most unusual symbols, and this is a fact, that... On one of the 12th century documents in Paris, where it was found in the National Archives, um, a symbol that we know is Gnostic. And that might seem a shock, like, you know, wow, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that the whole order was Gnostic. What it means is it appears that the Knights Templar had adopted the image um, and of an ancient, a common practice then was to carve gemstones in the ancient world, and it, it made its way into medieval guilds, too, of protecting certain areas with symbols, believing that they were protected by angels, you know, protect mm-hmm. certain precious items. The interesting thing about the Templar um, image of, was of something called a praxis, which is um, kind of a complex description, but it's, it's like a rooster figure that's got some unusual... Legs and a serpent that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can look it up on the internet. Um, but it, it's very fascinating because it relates to geometry and numerology. But the primary reason they had that, and they had other symbols that we know from Alexandrian Gnostic Christianity, and again, these were used in Christianity. It's not like it was a totally a pagan symbol, but it was often believed to provide special protection. Um, for precious items. Now, this this was found on the Grand Master's Seal of the Templars in, for the Paris treasury. So, again, it's quite interesting that we would see this ancient um, Christian symbol of protection, probably originally from around Alexandria, used in 12th century Paris to perhaps get angelic protection or something for what was in, in or near the treasury. So that that's one thing that is, you know, there's a lot of interesting speculation about that. But, again, in other provinces, we have a lot of other symbols that are um, in many Christian buildings, also in many ancient temples, which, again, you know, a place like Roslyn, for example, is as much of a temple as a church in a way. Um, but the Templars had the Florida de of course, the lion, stars, doves, and quite a few towers, and their graves never had the name of the individual knight because it was forbidden to, to you know, um, accentuate the ego of the individual over the collective power of the group. The group was always seen as more important than the individual. So if something, that's another point, if someone says, oh, this is a Templar grave, well, the first question would be it, it shouldn't have a name of an individual, <laughs> um, because then it's, that's not really Templar. Um, but usually the grave would have a sword, and oftentimes you'll see an eight-sided floric cross or a flower-like design, part of it. And sometimes you'll often see a cross that has, like, steps. It looks kind of like a ziggurat kind of thing with a, cro- a Christian cross on the top of it. And that's, what, that's an old symbol um, that in later times, was called the Calvary Step Cross. We do see this symbol quite a bit in what we, well, it's been dubbed Templar Graffiti, (laughs) in um, the areas where we know the Templars and even some of their officers where they were held prisoner. And so it's kind of interesting because we know that it was carved by Templars. So the question is, why do we see sometimes some pretty strange-looking symbols? And this is an area that I find very fascinating to delve into further. But we see things like a hand with a heart on its palm. We see quite a few um, octagonal symbolism or some geometric grid patterns, you know, like they were working out some kind of geometry and um, perhaps almost like an architectural design in some places. And um, a lot of these step crosses um, and very fascinating issue of, of um, using doves and, and crosses and combinations of things. So, again, but it's not uniformly the same everywhere in each Templar place because it, it's regional and it depends on um, what was in that area.
0: So the known symbols of the Templars were many and varied from nation to nation, though we're still not sure what they meant by some of them. Coming up after this break, we are going on a quest for the Holy Grail. What is the connection between the Knights Templar and the rise of the Grail legends? You'll find out in a few minutes.
1: My name is Sarah Taft, and I'm the author of Mary Magdalene Shaman. You can see it on my website, which is at sarahtaft.com. And in this, you can see my paintings of Mary Magdalene and read my relationship to her. And how she healed me through a liver transplant. You're listening
0: to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. I hope you enjoy yourself. In this segment, I ask Karen about the Knights Templar and the Holy Grail. What about the Grail? Do you believe they had the Grail? Well, I've, the question there would be, what do you mean by
1: the Grail? <laughs> Um, the Grail is a very fascinating subject, as we know from Indiana Jones on, on to our modern day. But it actually, the truth is, though, in the in the medieval manuscripts themselves, and there are many written by many different authors. And the first thing I do want to say, and this is, we know this, that there is no evidence that a Knight Templar ever wrote a Grail romance, and that's been some people have misconception about that. That doesn't mean that, in there's one or two of them there's no question there's probably an, a, a Templar influence or perhaps that um, you know the, the author a monk is trying to portray what would be or seem to be a Templar that I have no problem with but um, we're still finding you know story some of the Grail stories mention um, for example an order of order of knights that have white robes with red crosses but then and they describe them as being very secular in behavior, which, <laughs> again, we, we certainly know that wasn't the way the knights were.
0: That's right.
1: Yeah. Um, but, the, but the point about the grail, the grail in the manuscripts is actually a, a spiritual experience. It is not really a material object. And it really goes back to what you said at the very beginning about, you know, it's the inner reality and the interior spirituality. Of balancing both parts of yourself that's really the focus and not treasure you know today it's like everyone's on a treasure hunt but maybe the real treasure lies within and in a lot of the medieval Latin manuscripts for example some, sometimes the monks are a bit bored you know and they'll write something in the in the margins <laughs> oh, it's, it's great some great fun it clarifies things sometimes but there, there's about nine major objects that we know were connected with the, a knight's experience of the grail, like Sir Galahad or you know, Arthur or whatever. But it could be described as a silver platter, a dish called a grail, a special dish um, that had like the Eucharist or a fish in it, for example, a sword, a bleeding white lance, a dove with the communion host in its beak. Um, some believe the Grail was actually the secret gospel of Saint John, and again, mm-hmm. we don't know for sure. But there's all these different forms the Grail could have potentially taken. One of the most common um, feelings you get when the Grail is described, or when someone experiences the Grail, is they'll see a blinding light of some type, or they will, ha- or something luminous, mm-hmm. and then they have an inner experience. Mm-hmm an inner reality with with God or a higher experience. And Wolfram von Eschenbach is one of the famous authors of the Grail, and he wrote a story called Parzival, which is quite amazing, and it's quite esoteric, it's powerful, but it's unique in in a couple ways. I just want to quickly mention this one, because it mentions that the Grail is found in the stars, that it's actually like perhaps a celestial issue that's beyond our ego and our planet, perhaps. It's it's taking on a universal perspective. And it also talks about the grail as a luminous stone, a stone from heaven that fell to earth. So it's really one of the few, if any, grail romance that talks about the grail as a stone and connects that with light and interior knowledge. Mm -hmm. So there's nine or ten different things the grail can be, but... There is no one grail then. There is no one grail story, but there are many grail seekers.
0: Well, that seems very appropriate. appropriate. As above, so below. If it's going to be on one level, it could exist in some other form on another level. And um, I think that that's one of the great mysteries of all of this. And you mentioned Rosalind Chapel. And uh, there are many popular authors right now that basically feel that, that that's that's where the, the Templars went, and and of course Dan Brown certainly um, encouraged that kind of view. But could we go back to Roslyn Temple because you know a lot of been, uh, experienced a lot there. You were there for some time. I was
1: just there two weeks ago. Um, Roslyn is is so phenomenal. Um, I guess the first the first thing I can say about Rosalind Chapel is I'm very glad of all the interest. Um, even if it's wildly speculative, I'm I'm very I'm very glad the Da Vinci Code came out. I thought Dan Brown wrote an incredibly fascinating thriller and I I'm glad. I, I think it's good. It's it's brought a lot of interest to Scotland, by the way, which is good. <laughs> and the point being, Rosalind Chapel is not just a chapel, it's actually part of two other things that are very, very integral to seeing the whole place. And it, it's, it's part of a much larger property around it. Of course, we know that the founder was one of the most illustrious Renaissance men of his time, um, late middle, very late Middle Ages, right on the cusp before the Renaissance came in, in about 1450. You know, mm-hmm. and his name was Sir William St. Clair. Mm-hmm. So the St. Clair family, we know Sir William's incredible efforts were behind the building of this extraordinary place but it is on a hill called Collegiate Hill. It is part of an ancient group of Scottish churches called the Collegiate Church churches and Rosalind's official name of course is the Collegiate Church of St. Matthew and it is part of um, the idea of a church being not only a holy place, a place of worship but a place of education college, collegiate, education, learning, this type of thing. I like to think of Rosalind today, and many many people agree that, it's you know, you walk in and it's, it's not just a chapel. You know it when you're there, but you can't quite put your finger on why <laughs> because it, it, it has that extra element of helping through the symbolism and the placement of certain symbols in certain places to, to aid the visitor, the viewer, help them experience where something interior, if if they're meant to do that at that time. In that sense, it's like a type of temple. But Roslyn, back to my original point, it's not only a chapel. It's part of the glen, the land around it, which is quite extensive. There's a lot of hiking area around it and forest. And there's the ruins of what was the the Roslyn Castle, so it's it's really a tripartite, three-part site of castle, glen, and chapel. So Roslyn is not just about the carvings inside. It's about the whole matrix of place around it also. Mm-hmm. But it is very special to not only the St. Clair family. It's very, very special to Freemasons, in particular those of the Royal Arch, I can't tell you how many times (laughs) Um, we would be there working on a a curatorial case or a new object was found or something. And, you know, a couple of times, a couple of American, I think one was a judge, and they were Masons. They walked in, and I said, oh, this is Royal Arch. And they went right over it, and they discussed it. And, you know, we went to dinner, and I learned an awful lot about some of, you know, their stories about the, the founding of the temple and their legends. And it's all very fascinating um, integral place of using what I think is a very powerful system of symbols and allegory in a process of unfolding in us as viewers. And that was what was really going on in much of the Middle Ages with the guilds. It happens to many today at Chartres. I led a tour to Chart last September, and we had a lot of interesting, um, very those of us modern day people were saying things that I was thinking, this is interesting. It could have fit right into a 12th century pilgrim's story, you know, of how a place affects you. And Rosalind is about the power of the symbols. And Sir William was very astute and very aware of how he was putting this system together to help teach and learn for prosperity. Mm -hmm. And, um, he wanted to leave something for us today.
0: Well, one of the things that, that's quite, well, it's repeated often within the temple temples, the green man. Um, could you tell us a little bit about who this green man is? and, and The uh, green so-
1: man is really great. It's very fascinating. And I guess the first thing I would say, <laughs> I know the women out there will love this. Well, there wasn't just a green man. There was also a a green lady. How shocking. Charming. That's shocking. <laughs> and she's at Rosalind, and guess <laughs> what? We don't hear about her too much. No. But the point is, yes, the green man is a very ancient symbol of, um, it's obviously very old, much older than the church, but we must ask ourselves, you know, what, why would the, this image of a what looks like a severed head with greenery growing out of his mouth, like vines and, you know, and they're found in India, Borneo, all you know, not just in Western Europe, but certainly by the 6th, 7th century we start seeing them in Italy. And by the time, you know, not 10th, 11th, 12th, we see quite a bit of it all over Europe. But he symbolizes renewal and growth, reinvigoration, and a certain kind of awareness. And this is very good today with our new environmental awareness, the connection between the human and the nature, and humanity and nature. And this is very much a theme of the symbolism, much of Rosalind. In fact, the four seasons are present. When you walk around, you'll notice, you know, all these green man images, and people think, well, wow, they're not all the same. Mm -hmm. And this is what is extraordinary. There are over 320 of these green man images in what is admittedly a very rather small, compact chapel, more so than any other building in medieval Europe. And it just seems really cr- incredible that he, the founder would include this. But it is, again, it's part of a the glen, you know, the chapel. And the, uh, some people say it's the chapel of the grail because it's it's near this greenery in the glen and, and it has these huge um, foliage of real trees outside. And then you walk in the chapel and there's all these green men. But the green la- there's two green ladies as you approach the edge of the Lady Chapel, they head down to the crypt, and it's quite interesting. They have long hair, and they're on either side. So it is part of the, the symbolism, but it's, it's not the only meaning of the chapel.
0: Indeed, the green man is not the only meaning of the Roslyn Chapel. When we return, we will find out more of the mysteries that Dr. Karen Rawls has uncovered at Roslyn Chapel, and the surrounding templar shrines
1: this is jim willis author of lost civilizations the secret histories and suppressed technologies of the ancients you are listening to 21st century radio with dr bob Hieronymus. please contact me though at www.jimwillis.net to learn about my other books and projects because i'd love to hear from you
0: After we hear more of the deeply rich mysteries of Scotland's Roslyn Chapel, remember, this is where the climax of the Da Vinci Code took place, Karen's going to tell us how a Templar prophecy might relate to the upcoming year of 2012. But first, what are some of the influences behind the many different carvings at Roslyn?
1: We see a combination of Old Testament, New Testament, pagan, um, some say Sufi, Masonic, all kinds of different types of carvings. And some of the carvings, however, have been badly damaged. Some have been altered, you know, through time, and there's been a lot of It's in my book about some of that. And um, the one thing I do want to say, no, the Knights Templar did not build Rosalind Chapel, but they did have very nearby, in what is today still called the Village of Temple, ironically, very appropriate, what that was called Balintrodach, which was the headquarters of the medieval Scottish Knights Templar. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't at Roslyn per se, but it was very close by. Um, the village, is, I think today, it's about 10-15 minute drive, <laughs> not far. So the point being that there was, you know, there was a lot of interplay, but you know, the, temple, the Templars did not build Roslyn. So, but, but, again, it's, it's a still a symbolic place um, in that it, it embodies a message of, again, if many go there and see it one way the first time they visit, they'll go a year or two later and they'll see it totally differently. Kind of like a lot of people say about certain scriptures or ancient readings, you know, it, it it seems to it depends on where an individual is in their own individual spiritual journey, what how a place will strike them or what will what will pop out at them, you know? So Rosalind's message is is not just about the early Christian history there and the Saint Clair family, which is very, very fascinating and important. It has a Masonic history in Scotland, it has very important obviously um guilds that built built the place and were part of it. Um, it is, again, I want to emphasize a lot of early Scottish traditions that were already indigenous to the area and around there. Some even have speculated about, you know, Sir Gawain the Green Knight. Um, you know, the earliest ballad is in the, you know, Midlovian or Lowland area of Scotland, which isn't terribly far away from Roslyn. So, again, there's all these different... Um, Local and broader perspectives that come together at this place.
0: A good example of that was when you come to the Black Madonna. You have a on on from pages 36 to almost 40. Yeah, 41. This is this is just ex- wonderful. This particular area, for, as far as I'm concerned, because so much has been made uh, from the Da Vinci Code about Black Madonnas. Um, uh, in, in the interest of time, because we were. We just have maybe around 10 minutes at the most left. Um, could we touch on the Black Madonna and uh, what this particularly means? Because I was fascinated that um, some of them were painted black. I didn't know that. I thought they just darkened. So there was intention. Yes. There had to, there was some kind of intention to make them black. Some of yes, them. Yes,
1: yes. It is very fascinating, um, especially for those of us who weren't actually brought up Catholic. I mean, <laughs> it's quite shocking to find out that, you know, not all of the, the beautiful Blessed Mother, Our Lady Vir- Vir- of, of Virgin Mary statues um, were actually white or light-colored. Both of them are, but not all of them. But what's really interesting when you study pilgrimage um in the 12th century in particular some of the most popular shrines were for these images of our lady and still are by the way many of them where she was actually painted black as you say or in some cases made out of jet like black stone or ebony or something um so the question is why why would why would this be there at all what does she mean what's going on here and again, um, church historians have studied this and debated it, and they kind of kiboshed it for quite a long time because it was seen as not terribly relevant to the larger picture. But today, as you say, there is a lot of interest in this, and partly because of the clustering of the bulk of the imagery which, around the Languedoc area and Provence and France and certain areas of Italy and areas that you know we do know there were you know, some interesting alternative things going on. Well, I just want to real quickly mention that, you know, the High Middle Ages is not just about Christianity. There were a lot of really important Kabbalistic academies, especially in Girona and Spain and parts of um, all over France, various areas. In fact, there were some translators of Hebrew that were working with Bernard de Clairvaux and other monasteries, and some of the Templars knew them, et cetera, et cetera. So, there's a there's a, a Jewish thing going on, and then, of course, medieval Spain. There was a Sufi Islamic influx of knowledge into Western Europe, which was really radical. It was like shocking new knowledge, and it was a bit of a fright to the church in some ways. <laughs> but um, the point being, they, they brought their symbols and their traditions with them. And we know that many of the, the art historians who've studied the Black Madonna that I've spoken with in many countries do think that there were certain ancient goddess traditions that had a black goddess, a mother goddess image. Of course, Isis, you know, nursing Hor- Horus. Um, some of her images are, I mean, obviously she was Egyptian, a dusky lady. And others were um, like Artemis of Ephesus and Cybele. These other, there were other ancient goddesses, and we know the Romans came quite early, with uh, the three Matronas images from Rome when they came into Gaul, and they brought some of their images, and they had black stone. So the question is, you know, it's sort of like a lot of churches were built on top of earlier pagan sites. Some of these images that were perhaps ancient or more pagan were then Christianized. But there is a special meaning, I think, that the Black Madonna has, very special, and it, it's very biblical. It relates to the Song of Songs and other scriptures. The concept of a special lady called wisdom, and it's sort of she's embodied often in parts. Of even the the idea of the unformed, unmanifest archetypal wisdom that is the backdrop of our world. You know, it's sort of like a painting. You go to a museum. You see the, the highlights and you see the shadows. You see the forefront, you see the background. It's sort of the other half of the story, the other half of the picture that you need to see the whole. So the black Madonna possibly, again, possibly, could symbolize a, a Christian acknowledgement of the Lady Wisdom. I think. The reason I take this position is that St. Bernard of Clairvaux was known to be an absolute avid Marianist. I mean, almost, I mean, just, just so extraordinary. He did all these sermons, um, interpretations on the Song of Songs. And as I mentioned earlier, he was the main advocate for the Knights Templar, you know, to get them made official.
0: Well, uh, again, I found the listing and here of, concerning the Black Madonna, extraordinary, uh, as you know, Black Madonna is not identical with Saint uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, and and yet, of course, that is very popular yeah, right now a with the Pilgrimage yeah, but yeah. it's
1: good on um, the Gazette in the back about pilgrimage sites is quite interesting. Yes, but the issue of Sophia, the mother, the Sophia. universal mother of wisdom, is interesting because in a philosophical sense, and this is getting off into philosophy and theology, but she is the unmanifest wisdom behind our phenomenal or apparent reality. She's the deeper, darker, secret truth. And, you know, it's just possible that some of the Church Fathers did not therefore object to the Black Madonna. The other thing I want to mention about the Templars, people think, oh, maybe the Templars worship the Black Madonna. Well, at that point, they probably did. All good, devout Christians would have. It wasn't considered a heresy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't considered, a, you know, to what? worship or to venerate, as opposed to worship. To venerate the black Madonna was seen as an honorable thing. So, you know, again, that would not have necessarily on its on its own been seen as heretical.
0: Were there female Templars?
1: Um, there were. We know there there were not... They were not allowed to be full knights or dames, but um, we have uh, quite a bit of evidence from donations of land that um, women were very key, especially widows would give, uh, sometimes they were quite wealthy, would give large tracts of land to the Order of the Temple, and they were made, um, like we might say, like Smithsonian or a museum. They have an organization called Friends of the Museum, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they did. They had it. They called them a Sorora sister, or a friend of the order, and um, you know, there's, there were quite a few women, you know, powerful, wealthy women in certain areas that were known to be key patrons and supporters. Although of course they weren't allowed to live on the property, but sometimes they had a, house, a women's house nearby that they would help out with some of the tasks. And it was such a huge organization, you know, it was it was just massive. I mean, but of course, it was primarily male, and we know that they were very strict about that as far as full night full membership. They did have, by the way, four or five or six different levels of membership for men too it, mm-hmm. and very you know very few i think only twenty percent or something were actually full knights, you know the others were like sergeants and different levels, so i mean you know it it was quite a big thing to be a full knight for a man. So, for a woman to be acknowledged, especially in the twelfth century like that, it's really quite interesting.
0: Well, we're we are really out of time right now, and yeah. yet and yet there is That's still, lovely. yeah, and still, I would love for the the last question dealing with you know we are moving towards two thousand twelve. Uh, uh, how is might that be relevant to the High Middle Ages?
1: Mm. I know we've you know, we all heard about the Mayan prophecies, and, and I think that it's very interesting, and the concept of, you know, within their civilization. But it's interesting because in 1312, as I mentioned earlier, the Knights Templar were officially suppressed um, by the Church. And, of course, 700 years later is 2012. <laughs> so it, it's interesting because there was an old... Languedoc folks saying um, it sort of has several different versions, but it it has it uses a plant or a green image as an analogy for death and renewal of an idea or a concept, mm-hmm. and it it goes it, it's about the laurel plant, and it says after 700 years the laurel will grow green again. Isn't it interesting that nearly 700 years? Since the original arrest, of course, 1307, 2007, just one year after the Da Vinci Code came out, and now we're moving up to, you know, to 2012, um, around 700 years later, we're seeing, we are seeing, aren't we, an incredible renaissance of interest in the Knights Templar. Indeed. <laughs> Fascinating. We're seeing it in the Cathars. We're seeing it in the Grail. We're seeing all these subjects that, you know, you mentioned at the beginning about, what, what does all of this mean for us today? And, you know, why should we care, so to speak? And I think we are searching for roots in the West. We are searching for that, that truth at the root of not only ourselves, but our nation and our world. And we are finding, I think the Internet has helped, helped connect us all much more, not only with words, but it's also the issue of symbols and i know there's been a lot of all kinds of speculation about symbols some much of it is not accurate but some of it it, it's again it's good to see the interest Mm -hmm. and um we need to further clarify what these symbols mean and you have to look at their context but there's no question that 700 years after the suppression of the order we are now seeing you know in a sense a whole new renaissance new perspective in that sense Dan Brown's been a fabulous thing. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, <laughs> you know? yes. So I, no doubt about it. I, I welcome the interest I, on all levels. Um, I'm not afraid to interact with people on, about it. I think it's great, and I think it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's, um, it's better than just vegging out in front of the telly. You know?
0: That's that's for sure, and that's the reason why it's uh, this book is great. Knight's Templar Encyclopedia, The Essential Guide to People, Places, Events, and Symbols of the Order of the Temple. Dr. Karen Rawls, and she's also the author of The Templars and the Grail, published by New Page Books. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Dr. Karen Rawls.
1: Thank you very
0: much. So wasn't that much better than vegging out in front of the telly, as Dr. Rawls just said? We obviously have the highest regard for Dr. Rawls' standard of research, and we'll encourage you one more time to order her books from New Page by visiting her website at ancientquest.com. See you next week on 21st Century Radio. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and remember to sit up straight.